everybody. How are we all doing? Good. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1090. And as always, we'll be doing some Q&R at the end. So if you wanted to go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt, you can text in your questions at any time. And we'll take a look at those when we wrap up. Um, I do want to draw your attention real quick to um, the first part of the art installation for the Lenten season. Um, the um, women on the art team have been working hard to put this together. Um, I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but we talked a little bit about lies that we tell ourselves and how the gospel unravels those lies. And um, this is the first part of that. We're going to see a, an addition to the piece every week up until Easter. Um, and so uh, take a few minutes. Art, sometimes some of you are super artsy people and you're into this sort of thing. Some of you are like, what, what, what is this? And that's okay. Everybody's different. But I would just encourage you to take a few minutes at some point today and just reflect on what you're seeing and what sort of things that's bringing up in your heart and mind. That's the point of visual art oftentimes is to get us to... Um, notice the things inside of us. Um, so that'll be there and then added to as the weeks go on. And just another like point of clarification, um, we'd love it if, if your kids would look and not touch. <laughs> that might be too much to ask. We'll see. Let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, thank you so much for these people in this place. God, you are, uh, you're doing this work thousands and thousands of times over all the way around this planet on a Sunday, um, the first day of the week where we celebrate your resurrection from the dead. God, we are a people united by the supernatural, by things that aren't supposed to happen, but have because you are sovereign and powerful and good and you pursued humanity into our own brokenness to rescue us from sin and death. Um, and you've invited us into this people. We just praise you for your goodness towards us and pray that as we um, read Pergamum's mail, that you would speak to us through it, that your words to them would um, resonate 2,000 years into the future and speak to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word tolerance? Tolerance is a word that uh, maybe you think that's a good word. Maybe that's a positive word like kindness or love. You'd put tolerance in that bucket of words in your life. Maybe, maybe you have a little bit more critical view of the word tolerance. Maybe you think tolerance is something that, um, that is damaging or broken or indicative of something that's gone wrong in the world. Tolerance is a kind of a weird buzzword right now in our cultural moment. Uh, I have a couple thoughts from uh, different people about tolerance. Voltaire, who was a philosopher in France, said, think for yourself and let others enjoy the privilege of doing so too. It feels like something that we can get behind. 
Theodore Roosevelt, who was an American president, said, wide differences of opinion on matters of religious, political, and social belief must exist if conscience and intellect alike are not to be stunted, if there is to be room for healthy growth. He's talking about our nation and the way that we make room for people of different beliefs. More recently, former Prime Minister of England, Tony Blair, said, our tolerance is part of what makes Britain, Britain. So conform to it or don't come here. (laughs) So this is the sort of world we find ourselves in. Uh, We call it maybe a pluralistic society. We are in a marketplace of competing ideas. Some people believe in God. Some people don't. Some people believe in different sorts of gods. Some people don't. Some people are Democrats or Republicans or Independents or whatever other parties we've got going on right now. And we have decided to live in a nation together. Tim Keller, talking about tolerance, says tolerance is not about having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we think about tolerance. It's, tolerance, rightly understood, isn't a rejection of convictions, but it is an attitude of kindness of heart towards people that don't share your convictions. And so this is a very positive way to view tolerance. We as a, as a people, as a nation, we give space for those of varieties of religious convictions, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, whoever you are in our country, our, um, our, our, our giving space to others allows space for us, right? The Christian church flourishes in America because we allow for space for everyone. And this is how our nation was envisioned from the beginning, But there's another kind of tolerance, and that's actually pretty dangerous. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is a virtue for those who have no convictions. Uh, Dorothy Sayers says this, in the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. That's kind of bleak. A little bit different spin on the word. And maybe you resonate with that a little bit. Maybe you've seen tolerance become this just kind of milk toast disregard for any kind of conviction at all. We should all just get along. You believe what you want. I believe what I want. It doesn't really matter anyway. And maybe we feel some pushback about that. And I think that's a good thing to feel. Because I think there should be and can be a distinction between how we view tolerance as an idea in our society at large versus how we view tolerance in the church. And in the message to Pergamum, Jesus has some thoughts about tolerance within the people of God. So we're going to just walk through this message Again, if, you've, if you're new with us, we're in the book of Revelation. Jesus is writing to seven churches in what we would call Turkey, Asia, uh, in the Roman Empire in the first century. And in verse 12, we read, Write to the angel of the church of Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Pergamum. Pergamum is the capital city of Asia. 
So this whole piece of land that we would call Turkey has a capital, and it is Pergamum. George Ladd said Pergamum was the first city of Asia to support openly the imperial cult. In 29 BC, a temple was dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, and thus Pergamum became the chief seat in Asia of the worship of the emperor. So Pergamum is this place where they vie for the ability to worship the emperor as a uh, god on earth and the goddess Roma, who is the patron goddess of the Roman Empire. And this worship is um, not just religious, it is political. Pergamum becomes this capital of political power in Asia. And this is a constant theme that we're going to be going over again and again in Revelation, is that in first century Rome, the way of Jesus is in constant conflict with the requirements of patriotism. Daniel Aiken said, this is a major problem behind Revelation as a whole and was the core of Pergamum religion. Pergamum was obsessed with a love of the state. Patriotism had crossed the line into idolatry to not line up enthusiastically with the preeminence and politics of the state was to fail to be a good citizen. Robert Mount says, of greatest import for the Christians living in Pergamum was the fact that it was the official center in Asia for the imperial cult. So this tiny group of followers of Jesus are living in this big city that has dedicated itself to idolizing the emperor and the politics of Rome. And so Jesus comes to them speaking as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. So right off the bat in this message, Jesus is talking about judgment. The sword is for judgment. In chapter one, we saw Jesus with a sword. In chapter 19, Jesus is slaying his enemies by the sword that comes from his mouth. It's not a literal sword. It's intended to be his words. Jesus' words have power. But in Pergamum, Jesus' sword of judgment is pointed at the church. And it's a reminder for the church at Pergamum, because the Roman government in Pergamum was the one with the sword. They were the ones that could and did put Christians to death. And Jesus' initial statement to them is, no, I have the real sword. I have the real authority. I am the final judge. And then like most of these messages, the first thing after this greeting, Jesus says is a commendation. He says, he talks about the good things about Pergamum. He says in 13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives." Jesus said he's, he knows what's going on in Pergamum. Remember in the vision in chapter one, he walks in the midst of the lampstands. He is intimately aware of his church. And the temptation in Pergamum is to deny Jesus. And remember, in, in this context, this doesn't mean to change your religion. It doesn't mean to become an atheist. It means to give what is due only to Christ to anything or anyone else. Swear allegiance to Caesar. Offer a pinch of incense in the temple of Roma. Mix your allegiance to Jesus with what everybody else is doing. And Jesus says this temptation is nowhere stronger than it is in Pergamum. Satan's 
throne. This is probably a reference to the fact that Pergamum is the center of Roman authority in the East. Rome would have been the center of Roman authority in the West, in Italy, and Pergamum on the other side of the empire was the place where the Roman Empire uh, spread out from and exercised its authority in the East. The throne is a symbol of power. In chapter 13, we read, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads, and on its horns were 10 crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. So Jesus says that Pergamum, at least at this point in time, is the center of Satan's power in the world. And this is important for us to understand. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He is a created being. He is powerful, but he is unimaginably weaker than God. And he can only be one place at a time. Now, Satan has a team, which is outside the scope of this study, But for those of you that maybe are prone to say, the devil made me do it, bad news, you're probably not important enough for the devil. (laughs) He's somewhere doing something that's probably not at your house. The devil's got more important things to do. And at this point in history, he is supervising the destruction of humanity through Pergamum. And this little band of Christians is living in the midst of it. And Jesus commends them. He says they they haven't compromised their profession of faith. And it has cost them. Antipas is the only specific person singled out as a martyr in the book of Revelation. Many, many people are martyrs in this book, but Antipas' name is given. And we don't know anything about him other than he was killed for being a Christian in Pergamum. Jesus calls him a faithful witness. This is the same title that Jesus has himself in chapter one, verse five. And Jesus knows his name. If you've been at Revelation Church for a while, you know that our church has been growing fairly substantially. And you know what? I don't know any of your names. (laughs) I try really hard to meet people I'm really bad with names. I try to learn them, but I, I just, I forget all the time. And that bothers me because I know how powerful it is when somebody remembers my name. When I go into a space and I interact with somebody that I know doesn't know me very well, and they say, oh, hey, Zach, how's it going? Like, wow, you remembered my name. There's something meaningful to that. I've known a guy for like 30 years and I see him probably every six months and he goes, hey, Aaron. <laughs> and, and, you know, here's how I work. I feel embarrassed for him, but I don't want him to feel that embarrassment. So I'm not going to correct him. So I'm just Aaron from now on, which is fine. <laughs> see, it's fine. I don't care. <laughs> but it means something when somebody knows your name. And Jesus knows Antipas' name. Psalm 116 says, the death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your faith, 
Jesus knows what you've struggled with. Jesus knows your name. But things have gotten really serious in Pergamum. This, this way of Jesus thing has resulted in someone's death. I wonder how they processed that as a community. Can you imagine us processing that as a community, of us faithfully walking out the way of Jesus in Coeur d'Alene, and by doing that, one of us is killed by the government? Was Antipas a little too bold, do you think? A little too zealous? Maybe, maybe if he'd keep, kept his mouth shut, he'd still be alive. Think about his wife and kids. What are they going to do now? I think we should probably settle down a little bit, quit making waves for a while, just let this whole thing blow over, try to blend in. What kind of anxieties are stirring in Pergamum because one of them has been killed for following Jesus? This leads Jesus to his critique. Verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember I said when we introduced this book that John was going to like name drop the Old Testament all the time? So who's Balaam? Who's Balak? What's going on here? So this is the book of Numbers, way back in the law, chapters 22 through 25, and then chapter 31. And here's what happens in this story. The children of Israel have been rescued out of Egypt by Moses. If you've seen the Ten Commandments in Charlton Heston, you know the story. Um, and they are out in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, and they reach Moabite territory. And the Moabites are afraid because they've heard the stories about how Israel's God has done all these crazy things and destroyed the Egyptians and conquered all these places. And so Balak, who's the king of Moab, he hires a prophet named Balaam. Now Balaam, the Bible says, is a prophet of Yahweh. He's connected somehow to the true God, the God of Israel. And so he has access to real spiritual power, and Balak knows this, and so he offers to pay Balaam to curse the Israelites, curse these people so that we can come and defeat them in battle. And so Balaam's like, okay, I like money, and he goes to the people of Israel, he goes to a hill overlooking their camp, he intends to curse them, but Yahweh God won't let him. And in Numbers 23, we he finishes this amazing blessing on the people of Israel and Balak says, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but look, you've only blessed them. Balaam answered, shouldn't I say exactly what Yahweh puts in my mouth? So Balaam is, is required to follow the dictates of Yahweh in his prophetic utterances. But he really wants to get paid so he tries to curse Israel three times and God makes him bless them three times. And then when chapter 24, then Balak became furious with Balaam, struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to put a curse on my enemies, but instead you have blessed them these three times. Now go to your home. I said I would reward you richly, but look, Yahweh has denied you a reward. And so we keep reading in Numbers, and immediately after this, in chapter 25, we read that a bunch of Moabite women come down into the camp of the Israelites, and they begin to seduce the men sexually and invite them to their 
pagan sacrifices and the religious meals that they uh, celebrate their, the worship of their gods. And this is a big problem. And God responds by sending a plague of judgment on the people. And a lot of people die because of this turning away from trust in Yahweh. Which seems like just a weird change of subject in the text. But a few chapters later in verse 31, we find out that this is all Balaam's doing. Moses writes about Moabite women, yet they are the ones who at Balaam's advice incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident so that the plague came against the Lord's community. So we have to read between the lines a little bit, but what it sounds like is that Balaam, because he really wants to get paid but can't directly curse Israel, tells the Moabites, hey, if you go into their camp and use sex and religious practice to seduce them into worshiping other gods, this behavior will anger Yahweh and bring a curse upon them. And so this is what Balak and the Moabites do, and they hurt the people of God through these actions. So this is the background on that name drop in Revelation. Balaam is working for the enemy of God's people. And when it's clear that they could not be damaged directly, he chose a different tactic to get to them. In Pergamum, the Christians would not give up their faith in Christ even after somebody got killed for it. And so Satan begins to use a different tactic to get them to compromise with the world and to tolerate evil in their midst. Most commentators think that the Nicolaitans are just a different way to name this group of teachers. Um, The word for Balaam, if you kind of cut it apart in the Hebrew, means to conquer the people. The word Nicolaitan in Greek also means to conquer the people. And um, Jesus says, in the same way the Nicolaitans are doing this. And so the consensus is that these are maybe two similar groups or even the same group with one of them with an Old Testament reference. But basically, there are a group of people in the church at Pergamum that are teaching the Christians to worship idols and to engage in sexual immorality. What does it mean to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And, and we are coming from a very different place, right, in our culture. We don't really do this. You can go to places in our world today that, that do this sort of thing, but, but it's kind of a weird thing for us. It would have been totally normal in Pergamum. Tom Schreiner says, some feasts were given in honor of a God, but one could also attend a temple for private events like birthdays, funerals, the birth of a child, and so on. So think of it like this. It'd be like going to triple play and then being like, I'm sorry, I can't go to your birthday party. Bumper boats go against my faith. That's weird, right? The Christians by recognizing that going to these public spaces and participating at least vaguely in the worship of these gods was an affront to their devotion to Christ. They could not do that. And so they become these cultural outcasts. And not, they don't just become weird, they become people that are pointed at for not participating in the orderliness of society. These activities, going to the temple, sacrificing to the God, sharing in these meals that have been sacrificed, this is what's holding the society together. 
And it was dangerous for the city if there were going to be people in it that were not worshiping properly. And then sexual immorality. Roman men were encouraged to participate sexually with anyone that they wanted, whenever they wanted. And many of the temples were funded by the prostitutes that were employed there. This is a very different circumstance for women. Quite a double standard in Rome. But ritual prostitution wasn't considered strange at all, and it was encouraged, again, for the benefit of the state. And here's where we can slip up when we take this passage and we bring it into the 21st century. We can go, no idols, no prostitutes, I'm good. Next, next verse, right? And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know, I'm really struggling with idol worship or prostitution. And I, I, would, I don't want to diminish that. Those are real things that are growing in our world. But I think for the majority of us, we find kind of a disconnect here, right? But we can't just let that pass and get away with it. We have to be brought under the authority of God's word. So we have to ask ourselves, is there something about Jesus' critique here that we are in actual danger of, that we need to be aware of, that we may need to even repent from? How can we apply Jesus' warnings in such a way that it really means something to a bunch of largely conservative Christians in North Idaho in 2024? So let's talk about this idol worship. Idol worship, especially Caesar, remember, is tied to the health of the state. Roman religion is not a heart religion. It was a ritual religion. No one was being asked to have a personal relationship with Tiberius or ask dominion into their heart. That wasn't the framework. All that matters in Roman religion is that you do the appropriate things. And the appropriate things involve giving honor to the emperor or the Roman gods that are ultimately only due to Christ. Daniel Aiken says, There is always a grave danger in wedding God to government. The gospel and the government must always be kept distinct and separated. Further, it is lethal to the clarity and purity of the gospel to confuse it with national devotion and pride. Patriotic services may or may not have a place when the bride of Christ gathers to worship her bridegroom and king, but this much is clear. If we become more moved and teary-eyed over our flag and America the beautiful than we do the cross of Christ and amazing grace, something is seriously wrong. Ultimately, we must remind ourselves again and again that our hope is in Calvary's hill, not Capitol Hill. Now, I would go a step further and say that patriotic services are never appropriate in the gathering of God's people. Um, you can fight me on that. And often, the way that we celebrate our nation and its leaders is not appropriate at all. I want to I share a little bit with you. This is, this is a partial list of some things that we do in America that we are in danger of practicing idolatry in, in the form of American civil religion. This comes from Michael Gorman. And uh, he has three pages in his book of things that we do in America that he thinks are suspect. I'm just going to give you a few of them. And these are pretty, these are meant to push some buttons. So if you feel a little uncomfortable, that's the point. Our national flag is a sacred object. We blend Christian and American imagery in art. The cross and the flag, Jesus and the flag with the big American eagle behind it. 
The Pledge of Allegiance is weird. Patriotic music in worship. Some hymnals in America, you open up up to the back and the Star-Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful are in them. We like to apply the language of God's people to the nation. We're a light for the world. We're a city on a hill. No, that's the church, not the nation. Sometimes we view national documents as sacred. Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick recently said, we are a nation founded not on the words of our founders, but on the words of God because he wrote the Constitution. No, he did not write the Constitution. Gorman says this, Rome's civil religion involved the blending of Roman ideology and pagan religiosity, but American civil religion involves the blending of American ideology and Christian, or at least theistic and quasi-Christian religiosity. Contemporary Christians can much more easily assume that Christian or quasi-Christian ideas, language, and practices are benign and even divinely sanctioned. This makes American civil religion all the more attractive, that is, all the more seductive and dangerous. Its fundamentally pagan character is masked by its Christian veneer. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we should be ashamed to be Americans or that there isn't an appropriate kind of love of country that we can embody. There are many ways that the Christians could be glad to be Roman. Rome did a lot of good things for its people. But we need to ask ourselves if we're going to apply this command from Jesus to our own lives, do we have a tendency to respond to our country with a kind of honor that should only be given to Christ? What about sexual immorality? Now, there's there's some low-hanging fruit here. Some of us in this church are addicted to internet pornography, men and women both. That's bondage to sin. And if that's you this morning, just, I just want you to know that Jesus wants you to be free from that. Like, that's not something that you have to live with. That's been a big part of my story growing as a Christian, and, and it doesn't just go away. You have to fight for it, and, and the way you get that is by the power of the Holy Spirit and the freedom of confession and repentance. So if you're, if you're in that space and you're struggling privately with that, I would just really encourage you to tell someone, share your struggles with someone you can trust, because there's hope in Christ, there's freedom in confession, and there's strength in the people of God as we name those things and recognize them even in our own midst and work with the power of God to overcome them. That's a reality in our nation and it's a reality in the church, but what if we go a little bit deeper? Roman sexuality was about the encouragement to satisfy your desires, whatever they were. The false teachers are coming to Pergamum and telling the church, it's just fine. You have needs. God made you with these needs, why wouldn't he want you to fulfill them? A similar thing is happening in Corinth. In Corinth, uh, the Corinthians write to Paul and they say, everything is permissible for me. And they also write and they say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. These are the uh, reasons that the Corinthians are giving Paul for having sex with prostitutes. But Paul responds with something different. He says, the stomach, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord 
for the body. What is assumed in this conversation about visiting temple prostitutes is that my desires must be fulfilled. I have these longings, these needs, these these, uh, itches that need to be scratched, and I deserve that. My desire for sex must be fulfilled. My appetite for food and drink must be fulfilled. My desire for wealth or possessions or power must be fulfilled. Why do we practice sexual immorality or get drunk on the weekend or run up a bunch of credit card debt? Because we believe that we must have our desires fulfilled. And this is what the Romans believed. And this is what the Nicolaitans taught. And frankly, this is what it means to be an American. Ultimately, we suffer from a lack of self-control. Dallas Willard says, self-control is the steady capacity to direct yourself to accomplish what you have chosen or decided to do and be, even though you don't feel like it. In people without rock-solid character, feeling is a deadly enemy of self-control and will always subvert it. But the thing is, self-control isn't just something you muster up. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is something that grows in you as you allow him to permeate you and direct your life. This is why we fast. This is why we give. This is why we practice silence and solitude. These disciplines are intended to give the Holy Spirit space to increase our self-control, among other things. But these false teachers from inside the church... They say things like this. You you can spread your allegiance between Jesus and these other powers because it's uncomfortable to not fit in. And you also don't need to trust Jesus to, to know what you need and give it to you. You can take charge of that yourself and determine your own needs and go after them on your own. In both of these sinful teachings, you are no longer putting your trust in Christ to meet your needs to fight your battles, and to give you joy. And every single one of us are in danger of this. And Jesus says that it's deadly. So how does he recommend that Pergamum moves forward? Verse 16, he says, So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent means to turn around, to change your mind. to determine to make different choices. And this call to repent for the whole church is not because everyone in Pergamum is believing this teaching. You have some in your midst that believe this. The repentance that the church requires is due to the fact that they are allowing it to continue in their community. And this is where we get back to tolerance. It feels really good to just say, live and let live. It's no big deal. I I don't want to rock the boat. Having having hard conversations with people is hard, right? There's like three of you in this room that are like, no, sign me up for that. Everyone else is avoiding hard conversations all the time. But Jesus says that this is such a big deal, this false teaching is such a big deal, and the people that are being freely allowed to promote it are such a big deal that if they don't deal with it themselves, he's going to turn his sword of judgment on the church. Robert Mounts points out that the fault of Pergamum is the opposite of Ephesus, where the heretics were rooted out, but love 
was missing. In Pergamum, they were trying to be loving, trying to be accepting, trying to make space for everyone, but they were refusing to shepherd the false teaching. Pergamum doesn't want to make waves. But here's the thing. It means something specific to be a Christian. It means that we have given our lives over to the authority of Christ. The church is an organism made up of individuals that have given their lives to Jesus and submitted to him. So what does that mean? A couple of things. First of all, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can and do disagree about, right? Everyone in here disagrees about some things. Um, in our membership class, uh, in the second week, we talk about theological triage, and that's deciding what, what are the things that I need to believe to be a Christian? What are the things that maybe, maybe Christians can disagree about, but I'm going to have a hard time being in a church environment with somebody or a leader that believes these things? What are some things that, that we should be free to disagree about and actually kind of enjoy debating, but still love each other in a unity of a singular community? And then, and then what are the things that God has just given me as a command that I don't have a right to place on you? That's really important work, and we need to make sure we get those things straight. Because some things belong at the top, and we need to fight for them for the sake of unity. And some things belong in the bottom, and we need to be gracious with one another for the sake of unity. That also doesn't mean that we aren't works in progress, right? All of us are constantly stumbling and falling, hopefully toward Jesus. We, our hope as, uh, to speak for the elders of Revelation Church, our hope is that this would be a place of grace and love for one another as we stumble together. That that would be a mark of our community. And it also doesn't mean that we don't welcome those that aren't Christians, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and like I said, I don't know all of you, maybe, maybe you're exploring the faith, maybe you came with a friend, I'm glad you're here. There's no better way to learn about the way of Jesus than to get to know people that are practicing following the way of Jesus. And it's our desire that we are a people that create space for exploration and questions and doubt. That's a good thing. But when leaders in the church are teaching false doctrine that leads people into idolatry and away from the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says that that needs to be called out and dealt with. And it has no place in the community, and it is deadly serious stuff. We need to be a church that recognizes all of our stumbling and falling, our uneven flailing towards Jesus, that's the messy work of being in community with one another. But we can't be a church that gives space to those that lead people away from Christ. And this is primarily one of the directives given to the elders to guard the doctrine of the church. And we need to be vigilant to do it because it can always slip into false teaching. So, what's the reward? All of the churches have a reward promised to them. In verse 17, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, 
I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. All of these messages of reward to all seven churches are metaphors for the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God. And these are no different. The hidden manna is, if you, if you recall in the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel are out in the wilderness and there's no food and they cry out to God and God rains bread down on them. It appears like the dew every morning and they kind of scrape it up and turn it into flour and make cakes out of it. And this bread feeds them for decades, supernaturally from heaven. This is spiritual food in contrast to the bread offered at the idol's temple. Bread that's, that's not made by humans to appease God, but bread that comes from God because he loves his people. And that food is ultimately Jesus himself. In John 6, Jesus uh, is talking with the people. They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. This hidden manna is Jesus himself. And it's also connected to this idea of one day eating a meal together with him. In Revelation 19, we read, then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. The promise of true communion with God through meals in contrast to what the people think they need to do to appease the Roman gods in their temples. The white stone has a lot of meanings. I think there were 13 or 14 in one of the commentaries I read, which just means nobody knows what it means. Uh, but one way that the white stone was used in the Roman world was as a ticket to a banquet, which kind of ties in with the manna illustration. You would be given a token that was your entrance uh, token to the feast. And on that white stone is a new name. And the new name can be looked at a couple different ways. Some would say that every believer gets a new personal name from Jesus. And you can look at people like Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham. Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. This would speak of a personal calling, an intimacy of relationship. Going back to Antipas, Jesus knew his name. But I think a more likely understanding of this verse is that the new name is the name of Christ. In Revelation 3, just the very next chapter, we read, The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. In Revelation 22, it says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I think this is a more likely understanding of this name metaphor. And it might seem confusing because you might go like, well, don't we all know Jesus' name already? Like, how is that a new name? But the intention is that 
knowing the name, especially the name of God, has a deeper meaning to it. Greg Beale says, in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and to share in that person's character or power. This is a fascinating study throughout the scripture, but just real quickly, this is the purpose of the third commandment. Uh, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Carmen Imes, in her work on this verse, suggests that it's better translated, you shall not bear or carry the name of Yahweh in vain. And so the idea is the people of God have been stamped with the name of their God, and they take him wherever they go. They witness to who he is, his character, and his beauty, and his love for them in their travels. And the Israelites have been given the name of God to proclaim it to the nations, and in Revelation, the people of God are given the name of their Savior for the same reason. The Israelites and the church at Pergamum and the church in Coeur d'Alene, we bear the name of Christ. We belong to Christ. And so these pictures, they teach us that we are given access to spiritual food, which is eternal life, because of our entrance token, this white stone that has Jesus' name written on it. How do we come into union with God? How do we come into the kingdom? How do we come into the new Jerusalem? Through Jesus' name. Not through our own works, not through trying harder, not through being better, not by saying the right things or doing the right things or dressing the right way or having the right practices. All of those things may factor into our growth in Jesus, but the reason why we are invited to the banquet is because of Jesus' name. And so the call to Pergamum and to us this morning is to cling to Jesus. Not to the state, not to the idols of the culture, not to our own selfish desires, because none of those things bring us life. Only Jesus gives us access to life. And it is only by by Jesus that we will never hunger and thirst again. Let's do some Q&R. What does civil disobedience against false teaching look like in the 21st century? Hmm. So there's a couple different spheres here. So the, the false teaching going on in Pergamum was in the church being uh, proclaimed by people calling themselves Christians. And so the way that false teaching is meant to be handled in that context is the elders are empowered to protect the congregation from wolves. Um, and we, the church has been given the tool of excommunication, which is something that We don't talk about a lot, but church discipline is something that the church is required to do. If somebody is going to refuse to follow Christ faithfully and they're going to give themselves over to proclaiming like this, a false gospel, it is the church's responsibility to remove them from the community. 
Not because we hate them, not because we're sending them to hell, we don't have that power, but just like baptism is the church's affirmation that yes, I believe that you are a follower of Jesus and we welcome you into our community. Excommunication is based on the person that you've become, I can't vouch for you anymore and I have no right to judge your heart, but because of the way you're acting, uh, you cannot be a member of this community in that capacity any longer. That's the tool that the church has been given. We live in a very strange world where we don't just have one church in Pergamum, right? We have multiple churches in a city, some of whom are amazing and excellent gospel-centered outposts for the kingdom, and some are crazy. And then we have the internet and cities all around the world and pastors and leaders and influencers that can get online and say anything that they want, right? The the church doesn't have a mechanism for that. Jesus hasn't given me and Brian the authority to excommunicate some TikTok weirdo, right? Like that's, that's not within our power. So the question about civil disobedience, if we become a church that allows false teaching to take root, and you come to us as leaders and say, hey, this is, this is false teaching. And, and it's not like agree to disagree level false teaching. It's like the gospel is in danger false teaching. And we're like, we don't care. Then you should leave. <laughs> like that's the, that's the civil disobedience that, that you should be willing to participate in. Um, we were talking about it in membership class this morning that, that becoming a member of a Christian community should be really intense and heartfelt and deep. Um, not a marriage, but of the same kind, like 10, 10 levels less powerful. Because when you leave that community, it should be painful. You don't want to leave a church community, but it should feel like, man, this is really hard because I love this place and I love these people. But if there is false teaching happening and it's not being dealt with, then it is your responsibility as a Christian to remove yourself from that community. And that would be your civil disobedience in that um, context. And there's a process for that. Like, Like so many people leave churches just for, and they don't tell anybody. Like maybe there is false teaching happening and we don't know about it and we'd love to hear about it. So that would be that there's a process of working through that. But if at the end of the day, you're in a church that is actively promoting gospel, um, uh, false teaching that is putting the gospel in danger, then it's up to you to leave and find a community that is proclaiming faithfully the gospel. When it comes to everybody out there in the world, you just need to be discerning. It's so easy to just turn on the computer, listen to a podcast, whatever, and get anything into your mind that you want or don't want. And I love podcasts, and I, I have a bunch of, you know, subscriptions on YouTube that I follow from Christian um, teachers. Uh, and so that's okay, and that's good, and we should make use of the breadth of the Christian community. But be careful. Make sure that the teaching that you're listening, listening to conforms to the gospel and not um, to something that just satisfies your own desires. Yeah. Okay. Good question. As always, we're going to take communion.
We center our gathering around the communion meal, and we, we, we do our best to point uh, one another to the bread and the cup every morning. The communion meal is deeply connected to Jesus' words that I read in John. He is the bread of life, and the one that eats him, that takes part in who he is, has life. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way for your sins to be forgiven. There's no other way to be adopted into the family of God and participate in his kingdom. Every other path ends in death. And so, Christian, this morning, you're invited to this table to participate in the life of Christ through this meal. And in some way that we don't completely understand, Jesus says, this bread, this is my body broken for you, and this cup, this is my blood shed for you. That, that I am, I've gone to the cross, that I've sacrificed myself, that I've given myself up to, for, to pay the penalty for your sins, to rescue you from death, to make you new. And that's a reminder that we always need. That's why we do it every week. So I would invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup, take it back to your seats, spend some time in reflection. Are there things that you heard from the Spirit of God today? Sometimes, sometimes I say things that the Spirit of God uses to affect us, but most of the time I think the Spirit just kind of ignores my words and talks to you all individually, which is way better, honestly. If God is speaking to you this morning about something that's come up in your life that needs worked on, if there's false teaching you've believed, if you've, if you've walked in fear, if, if, there, if there's a, I don't want to rock the boat conversation that God is saying, actually, I think you need to speak up into something. Just take a few minutes and ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. Um, you're welcome to sit or stand as we sing. You're welcome to come and kneel at the prayer rugs. Um, but go ahead and take the communion elements on your own when you're ready. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.